0: An Air Canada A320 is on its way to Halifax in bad weather. What caused this flight to crash just short of the runway?
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landing Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
0: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy.
1: Doing something a little different.
0: Due to outstanding, (laughs) extenuating circumstances. In
1: other words, we haven't been feeling good. Things are (laughs) a little just haywire right before the trip, and it's like, okay, we're we're changing the plan a little bit.
0: Yeah, I made the realization yesterday that I was like, they're not going to be able to do two episodes. Oh, heck no, it's just not going (laughs) to happen,
1: and I appreciate the change. I was
0: like, I'll just just do it. So, for those of you who don't know, for the Patreon, every month I do a monthly Miranda-sode. And I choose something, usually it's something a little bit weird, and I do an episode on it. And today, we're doing one for you guys. Yeah. Because panic. Um, (laughs) Panic. Mostly. Very much panic. It was like, we needed to get something out, and we needed to get it recorded today, so that we can edit it and get it out for when we pre-did all of our episodes. Yep. (laughs) And we have to, like... Also, edit everything this week and post it this week. (laughs) Panic. Panic. So,
2: So, on that note, what are we covering today, Miranda?
0: Weird, huh? It is weird. (laughs) Today, we're covering Air Canada Flight 624.
1: I feel like we've covered Air Canada a lot lately. We
0: have. Freaking Air Canada. Yeah.
1: dang it. Gosh darn it.
0: No one, I believe, the last time I checked, no one had requested this episode. We kind of just found it. And I was going to do it as a back pocket type of thing, where if this something like this happened... Here we are. (laughs) We'd have it. And so this ended up being that time. What do you know? This was a domestic passenger flight from Ontario to Nova Scotia, Canada. Ooh. On March 29th, 2015. Technically, it's the 28th into the 29th. Okay. There were 133 passengers and five crew on board the aircraft. The flight took place on an Airbus A320-200 with the registration Charlie, Foxtrot, Tango, Juliet, Papa. The captain for this flight, there were no ages and no names. Excellent. I I looked everywhere. Couldn't find anything. He had a total of 11,766 hours with 5,755 of those hours on the aircraft type, which is an Airbus a 320 First officer for this flight had a total of 11,300 hours, so pretty close to the captain, with 6,392 of those on the aircraft type. So he's actually more experienced on the aircraft type than the captain is. My yes. And not far behind him in hours either. Again, I couldn't find ages or names of either pilot. Though both pilots had a lot of experience flying with Air Canada, the captain had been with them for nine years, and the first officer had been them for 15 years. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's a bit for both of them.
0: The flight was planned to take about two hours and nine minutes on an instrument flight rules fly plan. Before departure, Air Canada Dispatch provided the flight crew with the forecast for the planned airport that they had planned to fly in, which, by the way, was Halifax, Nova Scotia. Yep. The forecast was, quote, wind 350 degrees, true at 15 knots with gusts of 21 knots, visibility 0.5 statute miles. On moderate snow and drifting snow, and temperature at negative 5 degrees Celsius, which is 23 degrees Fahrenheit. Or cold. Cold. (laughs) Or
1: (laughs) All of this just means to me, cold.
0: Cold. Or Canada. Before the flight crew did their safety briefing, they made sure that the passengers were aware that they need to leave their baggage on the aircraft- In case of an emergency. What do you know? You could say this is foreshadowing. Great. Along with the other normal safety things, make sure you're looking at your safety information card.
2: Please look at your safety information card and then leave your shit on the plane.
0: (laughs) Pretty much. That's basically, yes. The flight is in the air by 10.05 p.m. local time. So, nothing wrong with takeoff, everything was smooth. The captain was the pilot flying, and the first officer was the pilot monitoring. It was also the first time these two had flown together.
1: Ah, so they're new to one another.
0: Yes. During the climb, the crew discussed amending the planned alternate airport to New Brunswick instead of Montreal. Because they're... they're- it had originally planned to go to Montreal just in case, but then they're like, yeah, we'll change it to New Brunswick because this would allow for more hold time at Nova Scotia sure. to wait for weather to improve if necessary. Based on the weather forecast, they decided they would do a localizer approach to runway 05 in Halifax. On their way to Halifax, the crew determined and calculated the cold temp corrections for the split crow final approach fix crossing altitude, the minimum descent altitude, and the missed approach altitude. They found that the FAF, or the final approach fix, crossing altitude would be at 2,200 feet above sea level. The MDA would be calculated at 813 feet above sea level. Both of these are actually above the published altitudes that they actually would need to cross at. Okay. So actually, um, the... Published one for the final approach fix without the cold temperature adjustment is two thousand, and the one for MDA is seven forty, I think.
1: Okay, so they're gonna they have planned altitudes that are higher than yes. Okay, that's good. Yes, usually
0: you would think. At ten fifty six p.m., Air Canada dispatch provided the flight crew with weather updates and advised that at ten thirty p.m., an Air Canada flight had landed. ...in Halifax on runway 05 after carrying out a missed approach due to bad visibility. At 11.11pm, the crew decided the 2300 METAR, which reported visibility of a quarter statute mile with heavy snow, according to Air Canada's operations specifications... The flight crew could attempt an approach past the final approach fix when visibility is reported to be at or greater than a half a statute mile. So currently they cannot go past the final approach fix for an approach because it's not enough visibility. So the crew decided to hold at Halifax either until the weather improved and the approach could be attempted or they reached a minimum fuel that required them to go to their alternate airport. At 11.21 p.m., about two minutes after the flight was cleared to descend to flight level 290, the flight crew carried out the approach briefing for a non-precision localizer approach to runway 05. This was followed by the pre-descent checklist. During descent, the flight crew discussed the holding requirements and then contacted the Halifax Terminal Controller to request a hold at, I'm going to say SETI, which is in a... A point on their approach. Sure. At 11:25 p.m., the terminal controller cleared the f- flight to hold at Chetty, where they just asked at 9,000 yeah, yeah. feet above sea level. Uh-huh. The crew determined that there was enough fuel to remain in the hold until 1 a.m. on the wow. 29th. Okay. They had a plenty of fuel. Plenty of fuel. At 11.34 p.m., the flight crew contacted the Halifax Tower Controller for an update on weather and runway conditions. The tower controller advised that the reported visibility was still one-fourth statute mile and that vehicles were continuing to remove snow from the runway. At 11.43 p.m., the flight crew began the in-range checks, which included extending the landing lights to on. The captain then indicated that he might want to, the landing lights off during the approach. Okay. There was no reason yeah. I could find for that. Oh, okay. And they didn't explain why that was, but I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Seems normal. Right. Uh, at seems, midnight,
1: seems <laughs> definitely a little strange.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I I I still don't quite know why they did that, but it might have to do with visibility things. So we'll talk about that in a second. Sure. At midnight on March 29th, there was a tower controller shift change. There's a new tower controller. Okay. At 12.07 a.m., the captain indicated that if the weather did not improve within the next 20 minutes, the flight would have to divert to New Brunswick. At 12.09 a.m., the terminal controller connected flight 624 and provided the latest METAR, which indicated visibility was now at one-eighth the statute mile.
1: Okay, that's Winds- very low.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Winds at 360 degrees at 20 knots, gusting to 25 knots, and heavy snow and drifting snow and vertical visibility of 300 feet.
1: That's not very good.
0: No. Four minutes later, the tower controller contacted the flight to advise them that the report of one-eighth a statute mile had been incorrect, and the actual is one-fourth a statute mile, although the tower controller reported being able to see two about a half a statute mile. Okay. Which, the whole thing in there is like, okay, great.
1: Fantastic.
0: At 12.16 a.m., the tower controller advised the flight crew of a special weather observation issued at 12.13 a.m., which included the information that visibility was now at a half a statute mile in snow and drifting snow and vertical visibility of 300 feet. I don't like it. Oh, wait. It gets better. Based on this, the crew decided they would continue to carry out an approach to runway 05. Maybe don't. Maybe you should just divert, but they didn't. The terminal controller cleared the flight to continue to descend on the localizer approach to 4,000 feet above sea level. They were also told that there was no change in weather since they had last got it reported to them. At 12.22 a.m., the landing lights were selected off, which then turned the lamps off for the landing lights. Oh, good. Less than a minute later... Flight 624 contacted the tower to confirm that the runway lights were on setting 5, their brightest setting. The tower controller, who was also dealing with snow plows on the runway and an aircraft taxiing for runway 05, indicated that lights were currently on the number 4 setting, but would be on setting 5 in time for landing. At 12.23 a.m., Flight 624 leveled off at 3,400 feet. Above sea level. About 12 nautical miles from the threshold of the runway. Which, if you caught that, I said they were cleared to go down to 4,000. Right. Not 3,400. Right. It gets worse. Oh, no, no. At 1224, approximately 11 nautical miles from the runway threshold, the flaps were set to flaps two. The aircraft initiated a left turn to intercept, capture, and track the localizer. During this time, the flight crew noted that the ground could be be seen looking straight down as well as when looking off at a slight angle so they could see the ground right from where they are at around 12 26 a.m about eight nautical miles from the threshold the captain called for the landing gear to be extended and for the landing checks to be completed the aircraft leveled off at 2200 feet above sea level the landing gear was extended and the missed approach altitude was set which by the way it never told me what the missed uh, approach altitude was <laughs> <It's on laughs> the In here floor. Probably But uh, They made corrections for it But they actually never put it in the report Which I thought was interesting At this time the tower controller requested The snow plows to vacate the wrong way
1: Probably a good idea
0: Yeah You know You, you, know, you don't need to be hidden in a snow plow
1: There's an instance where An airplane ran into a snow plow In recent years At Telluride Ended up in the ditch Lovely It was so great Great It was a private jet that Flew in without making any radio calls. Came in from Mexico and apparently just didn't see the plows. I don't know how. Yeah. On the runway, runway. throwing snow everywhere. Proceeded to land and just, yeah, plowed right into the plow.
2: That was bad. Not great. Bad verbiage. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Plowed right into the plow. Boo. Boo. Okay. At 12.27 a.m., about 6.7 nautical miles from the threshold, the flaps were set to flaps 3- followed by flaps full, the aircraft was fully configured for landing before the final approach fix. About 2.7 nautical miles from the final approach fix, using the vertical speed slash flight path knob in the flight control unit, the captain selected FPA mode. This is actually a a way for them to help guide them down to the runway, based on flight angle, and I'll get into this a lot later because it's actually a, a Very important thing. Okay. (laughs) The aircraft was now being flown with the FPA selected to 0.0 degrees. So there's no degrees of current angle. I see. The first officer began the countdown for the distance to the final approach fix, indicating 0.5, 0.4, then 0.3 nautical miles. At 0.3 nautical miles from the final approach fix, the captain rotated the knob to select negative 3.5 degrees on the FPA. The tower controller cleared flight 624 to land. The runway lights remained at setting four, however. The aircraft landing lights had remained off, and the first officer indicated that ground lighting was noted. This is important later. Okay. The aircraft started to descend at about 0.2 nautical miles from the final approach fix. So they needed to wait to the final approach fix to start descending, and they started too early. Oh, hmm. boy. The aircraft crossed the final approach fix at 2,170 feet. So it's only 30 feet below yeah, where they're supposed to be, but it's below. still not good because that right. means they're currently descending when they're not supposed to be yet.
1: And we haven't talked about it much, <coughs> but in when we're talking about IFR uh, flight plans, I mean, there's a bunch of tolerances, but generally for these 121 operators – Anything of, like, 50 feet or more deviation is considered way out of tolerance.
0: Great. Great. Well, Mm -hmm. good to know.
1: In most cases, anyways.
0: Uh Uh-oh. As the aircraft descended, the actual flight path diverged from the desired profile as a result of wind variations.
1: This is not a good thing.
0: The divergence continued to increase throughout the approach. The airspeed was constant. The vertical descent speed ranged between about 700 to 800 feet per minute. At 12, 29, and 27 seconds, a radio altimeter automated call-out of 400 was made. Almost immediately after this call, the aircraft crossed the calculated MDA at 1.2 nautical miles from the threshold. The first officer observed some approach lights and called minimum lights only. Then the aircraft was about 1 nautical mile from the threshold. The captain immediately called landing and began to observe some approach lights.
1: Mm.
0: By this time, the aircraft had crossed the published MDA, which was 740 feet above Mm -hmm. sea level, Mm -hmm. and was 0.3 nautical miles farther back than the published distance. Hmm. This is weird. It's, it's so weird because of the way they descended and their, the, what they hit on their flight computer. I'll get into it later, I promise. Yep. Okay, because oh, okay, I'm confused. I know. The autopilot remained engaged as the aircraft continued descending and there was a reduction in the descent rate. When the aircraft was about 0.7 nautical miles from the threshold, the flight crew had a conversation in which both confirmed they could see the approach lights. At this time, the aircraft crossed over a lighted facility. At twelve twenty nine and 47 seconds, the landing lights were selected on, so they turned the landing lights back on, followed by a very quick succession by the captain disconnecting the autopilot, an automated call of 100, an automated call of 50, and the first officer instructing to pull up. Oh, no. Flight 624 then severed the electrical power line that ran perpendicular to the runway, oh, no. causing a utility outage at the airport terminal. Oh, so great. Yay! About a second before initial ground impact, the captain advanced the thrust levers to take off go around the toga d- toga yep. detent. Toga detent, yep. And pulled the side stick to the full nose up position. However, at this time, one of the left main tires contacted an approach light located eight hundred sixty one feet from the runway threshold.
1: That's not a good thing at all.
0: At twelve thirty a.m., the aircraft's main landing gear, aft fuselage, and left engine cowling struck the snow covered ground on the south side of the embankment that sloped up toward the runway surface. The aircraft then struck the localizer antenna array and continued airborne after striking the ground twice more and then sliding along the runway. Ooh. The aircraft came to rest about 1900 feet beyond the threshold. During these movements, the aircraft completely lost electrical power. The lights inside the cabin went off and the emergency lights activated automatically. At 12.30 a.m. and 16 seconds, the tower controller activated the crash alarm. About two minutes later, while passengers were completing evacuation, firefighters with the airport emergency response services arrived at the accident site, which is in accordance with what it's supposed to be. Sure, yes, yeah. All the passengers had exited the aircraft within five minutes after it came to a stop.
2: Okay, five minutes is a really long time.
0: Yes, but there was no fire.
1: That's so. the Still,
0: good news. It's not great, but- It's I, not great, but let, yes. Let me get into why that is, though, because there's a reason. Okay. Many wearing open-toed shoes, shorts, and t-shirts, which is why we tell you not to do that. <laughs> it's
1: snowing where you're going.
0: You should never wear open-toed shoes on a plane. No, no. it's just a
1: bad idea.
0: No, don't wear heels, don't wear open-toed shoes. Always wear Anticipate pants. That Let
1: alone, like even if you don't get in an accident, there are so many hazards walking on an airplane, sitting on an airplane, walking through an airport. I just wouldn't want to wear open-toed shoes. I'd just be so afraid of getting my freaking toes cut off or jammed or cut.
0: Well, and if you have to if you're going to be in an accident, those canvas slides, they don't feel great.
1: No, they give you some serious burn.
0: So if you're wearing shorts...
1: Yeah, you're going to get burned.
0: You're going to get burned. You
2: need to dress anticipating an evacuation. Yeah. I know it sounds
0: drastic, but you'll thank us later when you have to evacuate. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Some passengers exited the aircraft with their... drum roll, please. Oh, no. Carry on luggage. Oh, God. As they were told not to do before the flight took off. Is it... Like, I'm not even surprised
2: at this point.
1: This is one of those things that just... Isn't that hard to not do?
0: I just literally you know, just blows
1: my mind. It's like literally just walk away. Yeah. Walk away. You're alive. Oh, uh, my God. What a concept.
0: All occupants were grouped about 200 meters around behind the aircraft. Occupants with more severe injuries sat in the emergency response vehicles. Some passengers, as well as the airport's emergency response duty manager, made telephone calls to the 911 emergency number. At 1242 a.m., the firefighters confirmed that all occupants had been evacuated off the aircraft and nobody died. Thank God.
1: That's, that's a good thing.
0: A crew member was seriously injured, which actually was the captain, I believe, and we'll get into why he was seriously injured. Okay. Tor- it Probably in the findings because it had something to do with his seat harness. I see. Four crew and 20 passengers were minorly injured, and there were 113 passengers that weren't injured at all. Good. Good for them, I guess. That's good. So a little bit about impact and wreckage info. I have some photos.
2: Okay. If you want
0: want to look at them. So the force of the initial impact crushed sections of the lower aft fuselage and caused the lower portion of both the main landing gear to fracture and separate. Each separated portion of the landing gear struck the corresponding horizontal stabilizer causing large sections of the stabilizers as well as the left elevator to detach completely from the aircraft.
1: Fantastic.
0: Family. These fragments were found along the debris field before the location of the second impact. Oof. After striking the ILS localizer antenna array, the aircraft continued airborne until the right engine and nose section struck the snow-covered ground. The right engine mounting pylon fractured. Oof. And the separated engine was retained under the right wing.
1: All I can think is, I mean, I mean, this definitely shows how safe aviation can be nowadays nowadays because all of these things require pretty heavy impact. Oh, yeah. To do. And the fact that.
2: Everyone um, survived.
1: And not very many people were injured.
0: Or injured badly.
1: Right. It just shows that it was. Yeah, it's 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 safe. But it this sucks.
0: Yeah, it does. suck. The nose landing gear collapsed rearward, and its lower portion fractured and separated. That takes a lot of force. They were, I mean, they were, like, going, he he pulled the levers forward to increase, I mean, I, I realize it wouldn't increase speed immediately, but. Yeah. I mean, they were going pretty fast to begin with. Yep. The aircraft then bounced before contacting the runway. The left engine completely detached from the wing and came to rest on the left side of the runway.
2: I'm not surprised by that at all. No, not
1: anymore. The
0: aircraft stopped on the left side of the runway in a slight nose-up left bank attitude in an approximately heading of 0.25 degrees. The nose wheel area was forced upward and rearward, buckling and fracturing many of the internal structure structural components of the aircraft. Great. The fuselage sustained multiple dents, tears, and punctures, including a large hole located just forward of the aft-pressure bulkhead where the fuselage skin and internal structure had fractured when forced up and aft. The flaps and slaps were damaged and the upper surfaces of both wings and punctures resulting from impact debris. There were four areas of the cabin floor that were damaged after the cockpit... Access floor, so between the galley and the front-runner seats. Yep. Forward of the passenger seat 31D, forward of the passenger seat 33D, and adjacent to the flight attendant's bulkhead-mounted forward-facing jump seat. Ugh. And I have, like, I have pictures. You can see, like, there's a crack oh, yeah. on the floor. <laughs> oh, sweet Jesus. That's, was not that good. was behind the cockpit. These two are harder to see because these are the two passenger ones, and then this is the one for the flight attendant on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Lovely. All of this stuff, by the way, is on the website. So have fun looking at that. So, uh what happened?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Uh, let
0: me tell you. It sounds like pilot error. It's, uh, it does. Oh, <laughs> yes. Okay, so this investigation was performed by the Transportation Safety Board of Canada. Canadia. Canadia. Or the TSB. PSB.
2: Or the BST, when translated into French, I think is what it is, or BTS. Yeah, something like that. Probably not BTS. I feel like I'd remember
0: that. <laughs> it's not the boy band.
2: <laughs>
1: no. Pretty sure it's BST.
0: The investigators did find the CVR and FDR and used them to help with their investigation. Good, good, good. They started with the approach visibility limits.
1: Yes.
0: In Canada, the minimum visibility authorized by the operation specification, which I couldn't figure out exactly what this would be with American operators, but it's like... So this this is a Canadian regulation, not Air Canada. Right. Okay. For a non-precision approach does not take into account the type of approach lighting system, or ALS, installed on the runway. So, it doesn't take into consideration landing lights?
1: That's weird. Which... How could they not make that a consideration in that regulation?
0: Same question, my friend. That doesn't make any sense. So, however, both the EASA and the FAA rules take into account the type of ALS installed on the runway when determining the minimum visibility for the approach.
1: They have to. It's... I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me. Under
0: the OPS spec, which is the operation specification, yep. an aircraft can carry out a non-precision approach onto a runway that has a published minimum visibility of one statute mile, even if the reported visibility is half a statute mile. I don't like that. No, I don't either. Without an approach lighting requirement, in Canada, this approach could be carried out with 1,500 feet of approach lighting. So as long as they have that approach lighting minimum, they can do it. Hmm. I don't like it. By comparison, in the United States, there would have to be an additional 900 feet of approach lighting, and that would be required to carry out the same approach. And it would make it a total of about 2,400 feet of approach lighting to carry out an approach in a visibility of half a statute mile. So it's already not great. Yeah. They don't have requirements for a lot of approach lighting, which, by the way, approach lighting can be pappies, lights guiding you to the runway. I mean, there's a bunch of different it's types of array. approach lights. Yeah. But it has to be a certain amount leading up to the runway. Right. So to help win its low visibility. Reduced visibility can obscure visual references and reduce the time available for a flight crew to detect them. So, like the ground. Yep. You know? That's usually. Or um, yep. there's other things that are on approaches that pilots look for, and it can be harder to see when it's low visibility outside. For the type of approach lighting system on the runway, it's not factored into the minimal visibility required to carry out an approach, and conditions... Of reduced visibility, the lightning available risks being less than adequate for flight crews to assess the aircraft's position and decide whether or not to continue the approach to do a safe landing. So they're already like, this is not great. No, it's not. They're not set up. Why? (laughs) Air Canada does path angle training. The stabilized Constant descent angle technique involves flying a constant descent angle so that the aircraft will cross the runway threshold at the correct height. The angle corresponds to the published vertical descent angle, or VDA, Mm -hmm. which defines the flight profile in which the aircraft will cross the runway threshold about 500 feet AGL, or above ground level. Yeah. To ensure landing within the touchdown zone. So basically, they use the FPA, which I Mm -hmm. had stated before, uh, to help them get to where they're supposed to be on the runway to touchdown. One way for a pilot to verify the aircraft is in a flight profile consistent with the VDA is to monitor the aircraft's altitude and distance from the threshold since 2014, both NAV Canada and Jeppesen have included a distance-slash-altitude table in their selected charts.
1: Yes, this is pretty common.
0: <clears throat> However, <laughs> Air Canada's SOP, or Standard Operating Procedure, and historical practice when flying a flight path angle guidance mode, which is the FPA, by the way, yep. was that once the aircraft was past the final approach fix, The aircraft crews were not required to monitor the aircraft's altitude and distance from the threshold or make any adjustments to the FPA. Great. However, this practice is not in accordance with Air Canada and Airbus's flight crew operating manuals. Oh. So uh, it's practice, but it's not practice as compared to the operating manual, Mm. which I love when stuff doesn't line up. You know, that's so safe. Flight crews select an f p a that corresponds to the published v d a that's how they get the angle to get down to the runway, and okay. the aircraft's autopilot system maintains the selected f p a so the autopilot does all the work for them right technically however <laughs> in the f p a guidance mode, the aircraft is susceptible to disruption such like as the wind wind yeah turns out. <laughs> Which, if not compensated for manually during the F- being in the FPA, yeah, could alter the flight profile. Yeah, I would say so. Yep. If such disruptions were present during an approach and flight crews are following Air Canada's practice, flight crews could not be aware of their effect on the selected flight path. So if they're not using the chart to see the altitude and distance from the threshold to double check... They have no way of knowing that they're not going to end up on the runway. Right. This is such a garbage approach method. Yeah, it's not great. Let me tell you, I'm assuming, because I I didn't really have time to read through the findings in Rex, but I'm pretty sure something's in there like, uh, please don't do this again.
1: No. God, no.
0: If the flight path deviates from the selected flight path as defined by the published VDA... The flight crews may have to make adjustments to the flight profile in order to safely continue on the visual portion of the approach to touchdown. For this instance, once FPA was selected and the aircraft began to descend, the flight crew did not monitor the altitude and distance from the threshold. Nor did they make any adjustments to the FPA. Awesome. Noted. This yep. was as per Air Canada's training, so the crew did not notice the divergence from the descent profile. Therefore, they crossed MDA farther back from the threshold than normal. So even though they descended early, because of their descent profile and the wind, they actually went yeah. down sooner. Yeah. Which is why they didn't get to the runway. Right. <laughs> their descent was steeper. Than- I'm, I guess I'm confused on how you could not monitor. Right. <laughs> uh, I'll get it. Actually, I'll get into that in a second um, because there is a reason why they were probably more focused on other things okay. like monitoring. So let me get to that. It was harder for the crew to note visual cues with weather, so okay. having the lights at five at the airport, yes, for both the approach lights and the runway lighting, yep. would have helped the flight crew to find the runway with the approach lights being slightly obscured by the storm.
2: Do you have any kind of quantification on the difference in brightness between levels four It did and not
0: get me anything on that. However, I'm sure if we looked at a chart or something for something, or looked it up even on Google, we could figure yeah. it out. Yeah. It, the point was, is the lights were not at their brightest mode.
2: Yes, sure. but I'm also wondering how much of an effect that is, you know?
0: Well, I mean, if you're talking about heavy snow, I mean, it could mean the difference between...
1: It could be a lot. Yeah, so
0: it's like I, I just want to know how like is is it twenty percent since oh, it's level five? It didn't like, did give me anything on question. the lighting system. Sure, so. and that's okay. But yeah, I mean I'm sure we can look it up. But yeah, yeah. The crew asked for the lights to be all the way up at five, but that could not be done by the controller. They were too worried about other stuff. The dimmer lights may have gave the illusion that they were farther from the one way than they were. That makes sense.
1: So maybe they were attempting to descend, thinking they were too high?
0: Yeah, maybe. It's a possibility. They saw lights, actually, between the final approach fix and MDA. That was the lit... There was a lit building underneath them. Oh. Uh, And so they had assumed that that was the approach lighting... I see. ...for the the approach, and it wasn't. it wasn't. Considering the challenging conditions... To acquire and maintain the visual cues, it's likely that the Fright Clue delayed disconnecting the autopilot until beyond MDA because their re- reliance on the autopilot system. So yeah. they were relying on the autopilot to get them down to where they're supposed to be because technically it's supposed to be able to do that, but also they were getting blown around by the wind. Right, right. The other thing, too, is part of the reason why they probably weren't looking at their instruments and monitoring was they were looking for the visual cues outside the window yeah, to make sure they could see the lights and get down to the threshold, which would be my guess. Yeah. However, should both of them be doing that at the same time? No. no. You have no. a pilot monitoring for a reason. Yeah. Um, obviously, crew resource management, not great. <laughs> Although the flight crew eventually became aware of that the runway environment did not look as it should... And had began a go around, they were too late on the approach sequence to avoid the aircraft colliding with terrain. Uh, The other weird thing, too, and I'm sure they'll address it in the findings, although they didn't address it in the analysis, was the fact that they had their approach light off for so long. Their light, their landing light. Their landing
1: landing light, yeah.
0: Um, And I don't know if it was because they thought the light would drown out the other lights.
1: Well, to some extent, I can kind of understand because you're flying through thick snow and that can be kind of blinding when you turn on
0: the uh, the, the lights, lights
1: flying through all that snow in the air. Yeah. I can ex- I can understand that to some extent. So yeah, I can kind of see what I can kind of see why they might have done that.
0: Which I after thinking about it a little bit, I'm like it's a little weird, but okay, I guess I can understand mm-hmm. that. Um they did eventually turn them turn them on because yeah. they had to. You yeah. have to to make sure the tower can see you. So The limited number of visual cues and the short time that they were available to the flight crew, combined with the potential visual illusions and the reduced brightness of the approach and runway lights, diminished the flight crew's ability to detect the aircraft's approach path and and what it was taking to the runway and how they ended up short of the runway and hitting the ground instead of landing properly. Yeah, yeah. So... There were other things they brought up in the analysis that we'll talk about in the findings. Okay. Oh, okay. Because it it had to do with what was going on inside the aircraft, oh. but nothing to do with the actual accident.
1: Gotcha. I see.
0: So, and I know they they'll bring it up because they brought it up twice Excellent. in the report, and I'm sure they'll bring it up again.
1: Then it's worth it.
0: Yes, <laughs> apparently. So, so those we'll get into um, after this short break. All right. Sweet. Let's take a prickety break. We back. Uh so the section for findings is actually finding as causes and contributing factors. all right. Oh, okay. There's uh three sections of findings. Sweet. Jesus. I will probably won't go through every single one. We'll Please go don't. through Probably a good portion of them, but not every single one. So they found that Air Canada's standard operating procedure and practice when flying in flight path angle guidance mode it's was that... Fashionable? Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> Once
0: the aircraft was past the final approach fix, the flight crews were not required to monitor the aircraft's altitude and distance from the threshold or make any adjustments to the flight path angle. This practice right. was not in accordance with the flight crew operating manuals of Air Canada or Airbus. Yeah, not great. No. Um... As per Air Canada's practice, once the flight path angle was selected and the aircraft began to descend, the flight crew did not monitor the altitude and distance from the threshold, nor did they make any adjustments on the flight path angle, because they didn't actually know that they were off the angle at all. Right. The flight crew did not notice that the aircraft had drifted below and diverged from the planned vertical descent angle flight profile. Nor were they aware that the aircraft had crossed the minimum descent altitude farther back from the threshold.
2: See, that's weird to me. Like, you should know that immediately.
0: It's weird to me because they had one that was higher. Yeah. Yeah. And then they had the published one and they ignored that one, too. Right. They just ignored both of them. What's the point of having one? They were too worried looking out the windows, that's why. I guess. Considering the challenging conditions to acquire and maintain the visual cues, it is likely the flight crew delayed disconnecting the autopilot until beyond the minimum descent altitude because of their reliance on the autopilot system. Yes. Which we have talked about with Airbus before.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about over-reliance on automation. It definitely happens
0: the approach and runway lights were not changed from setting 4 to setting 5 therefore these lights were not at their maximum brightness during the approach which is weird to me because you already have bad weather at the airport why don't you why just have them at 5 yeah. yeah right why i mean if there's like an energy reason or a saving reason like i would understand that but like say so You're right like i feel like if you have really bad weather which they do just turn them all the way up yeah i don't know I'm not a f- an air traffic controller there, so I guess I don't know. But The system to control the airfield's lighting present selections for brightness setting 4 was not in accordance with NAV Canada Air Traffic Control Manual of Operations required for the omnidirectional approach lighting system to be at its brightest settings. It was supposed to be at 5.
1: But it wasn't. But it wasn't. So that's against regulation.
0: Yes. Well, Great. That answered our question. Yes. <laughs> yep. The limited number of visual cues and the short time that they were available to the flight crew, combined with the potential visual illusions and reduced brightness of the approach in runway lights, diminished the flight crew's ability to detect that the aircraft's approach path was taking it short of the runway. The flight crew's recognition that the aircraft was too low during the approach would have been delayed because of the plan continuation bias, which I didn't really talk about, but we've talked about yeah. before.
2: Yeah, yeah. Is- it's get their Yeah.
0: Get, get their is, Yep. And the fact that they thought they were fine. The autopilot will get them down, right? No. Nope. The aircraft struck terrain approximately 740 feet short of the runway threshold. Bounced twice, then slid along the runway before coming to rest approximately 1,900 feet beyond the runway threshold. So great. At some time during the impact sequence, the captain's head struck the shield.
1: That's, yeah, why he might have gotten severely injured.
0: Because there was an insufficient acceleration forces to lock the shoulder harness and prevent movement of really? the body. Really? Well, then what's sufficient? So, they did an extensive analysis actually of this, and I this is the thing I didn't go into because it didn't have anything to do with the crash. It had to do with the after, crash. Sure. So he was the one who was severely injured. Uh, his harness wasn't, it wasn't secured properly. Okay. And so because of that, the back came loose and he oh. went forward. Mm. Uh, the first officers was fine. They, so you're
2: not saying that he didn't secure it properly to himself. It's the thing wasn't secured properly to- The it. seat. Guys,
0: It, it mm. wasn't his fault. Okay. He had his harness on the harness- came loose.
1: That sucks, though.
0: Uh, yeah. It was. And that falls on maintenance. Right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know. I would think so. The first officer sustained a head injury and serious injury to the right eye as a result of striking the glare shield because of the automatic locking feature of the right side shoulder harness initial reel was unserviceable. So his his thing was right, but part of his came off, and so he hit the side of his head on the glare ah. shield. Yeah, so that's, Ouch. that's fun. And then they should probably check those. Make yeah? Sure yeah, maybe a little bit. A flight attendant was injured by a coffee brewer that came free from its mounting base oh. because its locking system was not correctly engaged. This is another that thing that was, came up. That sounds like
2: uh, a yeah. flight attendant didn't lock it, though. Yeah. Uh,
0: I It didn't really put blame on the flight attendant. It it could have, I guess, come jostled during the impact. I'm not sure, but well,
2: they make it sound like it wasn't locked correctly going into. Well, and
0: I, maybe it wasn't. I and I could read more into it. They said a little bit more about it in the report, but yeah, it came free and hurt somebody. So
1: yeah,
2: and those are heavy they, duty. They are. Heavy. Uh, they. I don't know if you've seen this in the news, but recently that's <clears throat> been used by uh, cabin crew to. Uh, what's the word I'm looking blockade. For? No. They've been using coffee brewers to subdue subdue rowdy passengers. So hitting them in what? the head. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> Thank you for finding the politically correct
0: term. I wasn't yep. I didn't want to say beat the shit <laughs> out of them, but
1: no, subdue.
0: Subdue. Yeah. 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 Because no emergency was expected the passengers and cabin crew were not in the brace position at the time of initial impact so there' so the few passengers that were minorly injured mm. they uh, they hit their seatbacks yeah. Um, of the people in front of them well because Uh, they didn't expect that they had to brace right Right. so and that's what happened Uh, some people actually did have their hands placed on the seat back which Mm. isn't actually the brace position you're supposed to be in but it's better than no brace position at all so i wonder how like what indications they had mm -hmm. in the cabin that was like oh we're crashing let's brace well this was at night it was dark i don't know if they were able to see i I know. know
2: so that's why i'm wondering like how did those select few know to brace
0: Yeah. Most of the injuries sustained by passengers were consistent with no adopting a brace position. You know what also probably would have helped that if you read the damn uh, safety safety information information card card, because it shows you how to brace. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact, if you didn't know that, (laughs) now you do. Right. You don't know. Now Now you you know. know. So, moving on, there's other findings. Other
1: findings.
0: (laughs) The service director assessed the evacuation flow as good and determined that there was, therefore, no need to open the R1 door. So, they actually didn't open that door. Okay. In fact, they opened the uh, the L1 door. Hmm. I wonder if it's going to go through it in here. If it doesn't, the L1 door started swinging closed. Oh. You want to know why? Why? a passenger, while they were getting off, clicked a button. Oh. That released the door while they Why were is it slide. Release? That's just how it's supposed to release. It's I the release,
1: maybe it was, see it's how the that button
0: would that released. Um, but they determined it was a passenger that probably accidentally hit it on yeah. the way out of the aircraft and so, then started closing the door.
1: It may not be a button, even, it might be like a handle. Because on a lot of airplanes it is, and I don't oh. know, I'd have to look at the A320. It's, and
0: probably it's set a button as, oh. in the report. So. so,
1: okay, it could be a button, but when these doors are swung open, they're usually kind of on, like, the crossbar between where the door is and the fuselage of the airplane. Uh, and I could see how, like, if it was, like, a handle on some of these airplanes, yeah. you might, like, grab a hold of it to brace yourself, and you yeah. accidentally pull on it, pull on it and yeah. that's what releases the door. Yeah. That's how it works on certain airplanes. I yeah. won't say which ones, but I know... <laughs> some.
0: i know a few i know
1: some specific ones
0: so the next one i'm actually going to paraphrase they didn't open the l2 or or L- lr r2 doors so the the back doors okay because the flight attendants that were back there assessed mm-hmm. the situation and realized there's no fire there's not really a reason for us to open the doors right we'll just leave them closed yeah because uh, there wasn't a fire they were a low fuel yeah that's (laughs) true so there was no fire from impact and also the engines completely ripped off the aircraft so right at the time of the accident neither the service director nor the flight attendants had received the dual exit training Uh... nor were they aware of the requirement for such training in order for air canada to operate with the exemption allowing one flight attendant for each unit of 500 passengers Hmm. So that they actually should have used another door? <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Because there were more than It 50 should not passengers. have
2: taken... I, I understand that there was no active fire, but there is still the potential for fire. You shouldn't take five minutes to evacuate passengers.
0: No. Yeah, it's it's not... Uh, the evacuation wasn't great. They said the flow was good, but that's because they only used one door. Right. Can you imagine getting 100 plus people out of so one door? So did they not use the R1 door at all? No, I just said that. they. And you said it. R2. No, they didn't open, uh, so I, I said earlier, the service director assessed the evacuation flow is good and determined that there was no need to open the R1 door.
2: Okay, I heard R2 and L2.
0: Well, yeah, that was the second one. <laughs> so they didn't open the back doors, and they didn't open the front right door either. So they Which only used- That's a piss used, poor decision. That's a really not great decision. No, it's not. It's really not good planning on their part. Uh, not great. <laughs> no. A discrepan- discrepancy in Halifax International Airport Authority's standby generators control circuitry caused a two standby generators to stop producing power um, right after the plane hit the power line. So great. So they didn't have any emergency backup, which is great.
2: We've discussed before how not having backup to certain things on airport grounds can be catastrophic. Wasn't that also Canada?
1: Possibly. Probably. I don't know. Wow, Canada. Get your
2: act together. <laughs> <laughs> Get some better generators. God. Guard.
0: In Canada, the minimum visibility that is authorized by operation specification for non-precision approaches does not take into account the type of approach lighting system installed on the runway, which is stupid. Why? <laughs> right. It is likely that during the emergency, a passenger activated the L1 door gust lock release push button. While trying to expedite his or her exit, which allowed the door to move freely. Interesting.
1: Just, I just, just I'll, I'll have to look at. Let me see what it looks like because I'm curious now. Yeah.
2: So Nick has a picture of the <laughs> A320 L1 door gust lock, and it is definitely just a button. And the funny part about this is
1: that's the picture of this airplane from this accident. Yeah. The first, <laughs> that is the first picture that comes up when you look for A320 L1 door gust lock. <laughs>
2: and I can definitely <laughs> so. I'm trying to put into words what this looks like so there's a very large hinge mechanism and i can understand you wanting to use it kind of as a brace especially if you're elderly
1: but there is quite the inconveniently placed button in the middle of that hinge
2: it's on top of it so if you're trying to use that hinge to get like to a point where you can like scoot your tush onto the slide yeah that it's it's gonna press the button
1: yeah It's just a button. It's just a button. It's just a button. It's just a button.
0: And, like, you wouldn't know that that unlocked the door.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: fun fact, that happened. The passenger seatbacks were dislodged because shear pins had sheared, likely as a result of contact with passengers during the impact sequence or emergency egress. So there were a few passenger seatbacks that uh, came off off completely. uh, And it was because people hit them. Yeah. That sounds like a design flaw. Yeah, uh, it was, and I'm sure that they recommended something to fix that. Or I hope they did.
2: I really hope they did.
0: (laughs) I really hope they did. Recovery of the uninjured passengers from the accident site was delayed, owing to a number of factors, including the severe weather conditions. Yeah, it was snowing. The failure of the airport's two standby generators to provide backup power or the loss of utility power, the loss of the airport operations radio network, and the lock- lack of arrangements for the dispatch of transportation vehicles until after emergency response services had advised that all passengers were evacuated and the site was clear. And then last uh finding. Given the Captain used continuous positive airway pressure therapy, he would have been at risk of experiencing fatigue related to chronic sleep disruption caused by obstructive sleep apnea. However, there is no indication that fatigue played a a causal or contributory role in this occurrence.
2: I never even thought of that. If you have sleep apnea.
0: So they actually addressed this in the report. And if you have sleep apnea as a pilot, you actually have to keep it really... um, in control. In control and, control yeah, and contained. Definitely. And you have to make sure that you report everything. You're supposed to use this high-pressure therapy. You're supposed to make sure that you're getting good sleep. Otherwise, uh, they will not let you fly. <laughs> Correct. So even though he wasn't using that, there was no way to know if he was really fatigued. Right. Uh. Well, and I don't necessarily know that his...
2: How do I put this? It wasn't like individual decisions that he made that led to this. Yeah. It was a systemic procedure, Problem. yeah, that was being used. So I'm. Not, it wasn't his individual fault. I don't think he experienced. That's it. why I
0: didn't really talk about it during the analysis yeah. because I f- I read about it and I was like, eh, it, it, it's a little bit of a maybe, but it, yeah. it it's not really the cause. No. The cause is the the really horrible procedure they use. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Using the FPA. I mean, come on, Air Canada, get your act together. Jesus. Yeah, God. So they actually used all of that as the uh, probable cause, too, because there's no probable cause. I see. Uh, Okay. There's just safety action. Um, Oh, so things happened. Yeah. Uh, I would hope so. Excellent.
2: Well, I mean, sometimes we just read the recommendations and don't know if anything... I don't think there's
0: any recommendations, though. So... Okay. It might just be, uh, we figured we f***ed up, and... uh, Here's Here's what we did. Here's how we fixed it. (laughs) So, Air Canada issued the following documentation...
2: To maybe stop using that landing procedure?
0: Uh, Hopefully. Let's see. Flight Operations Manual, which amends the Flight Operations Manual approach policy in a number of areas, including the following changes... The required visual reference list now includes the VASI slash PAPI, so the visual approach slope indicator slash precision approach path indicator, as an option for lighting. I guess that wasn't the case before. Okay. The definition of required visual reference has been amended. The lights only call has been removed from the standard operating procedures because the reason why they, he said that is because he saw lights. But it, wasn't Actually, but it wasn't the actual right, lights like, he was supposed to be seeing. Right. So you need to confirm
2: that the lights you are seeing are indeed the runway approach. Yes. Right. And Pil- not just a building.
0: Yeah. Right. The pilot monitoring duties have been modified to require a greater emphasis on instrument monitoring during all approaches after <clears> minimum <throat> descent altitude. Yep. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> That's your job. <laughs> your position is literally pilot monitoring. Yep the approach visibility requirements in canada 75% of chart of visibility section for non precision approaches has been revised to reflect the link between approved minimums and approach lighting requirements what a concept what a concept the fom bulletin 322 so the last one was 324 this one's 322 threat based briefings which codifies and embeds that threat based briefing format for all departure and approach briefings into the Air Canada standard operating procedures, uh, which I don't know. I, I guess they didn't do a worst case scenario type of briefing. Sure. It would be my guess. Like if they had to do, they did set minimum or uh, go around mm-hmm. approach, mm-hmm. but I don't think they actually talked about it.
1: No. Okay.
0: And then uh, aircraft technical bulletin 482, revised NPA or non-precision approach, vertical descent approaches to provide clarity when flying vertically selected non-precision approaches. The bulletin contains the following warning. Quote, FPA, or flight path angle, is not a vertical navigation system. It is an angle in space. The aircraft may drift above or below the vertical profile, end quote.
2: Right. But what this doesn't do is restrict the use of this. No. no. I mean It just tells you, here's what could happen, but it doesn't say, don't do it.
1: It describes... You've got an angle you're supposed to follow, but winds and things can change where the airplane actually is, even if you keep that angle. Well,
0: because the problem was, was that these pilots were not aware that that would happen. Yeah. Right. And they didn't know that they may had to make manual but I feel, adjustments.
2: But I feel like they shouldn't be using this approach
0: method at
2: all. Right. Making...
0: it. Pro- they probably shouldn't be doing it in this low visibility. Right. It's
1: not precision during a situation where they definitely should have been, in my head anyways... And in a lot of airlines they would be, but then also there's the whole thing of, I mean, yeah, it requires a lot of monitoring and they just weren't. Yeah. And I don't know, there's just so many things about this that to me, it's like, especially in a pretty modern and recent accident in a modern airplane, it's like, God, this should have been avoidable.
0: Yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally. Air Canada has submitted a letter to the Transport Canada requesting that the standard for approach minimums be tied to the approach lighting capability of the runway. Amen. Yes, and that the corrected minimums be published in the approach plates, please. Yep. I feel like that's not too much to ask. Nope. Air Canada has contacted nine airports in Canada to recommend that they upgrade their approach lighting currently serviced by Omnidirectional Approach Lighting System, or ODLS, to Specified Short Approach Lighting System with Runway Alignment Indicator Lights, or SSALR, systems. The airline has also coordinated and participated in specific meetings with airport authorities in Halifax, Ottawa, and Kelowana. Kelowna. Kelowna. Thank you. To discuss its concerns, highlight operation impacts and considerations, and advocate for immediate improvements to existing odls So, please improve your lighting systems.
1: It no. only makes sense. Come <clears> to the <throat> modern world. These are busy airports.
0: Uh, a few more of these. Air Canada is working with Airbus to develop service bulletins to install global positioning systems on the 47 Airbus aircraft. That are not so equipped and has started a project to upgrade and enhance ground proximity warning system software on all Air Canada aircraft. You may notice the... G- they didn't have GPS. Well, they, they... no. And the GPWS wasn't working. It, properly. Like, it never said that they should pull up at any point.
1: Which just blows my mind. It means something was off with the way that it was loaded for Halifax.
0: It may have been a,
1: that the A320, I'm sure, has it. Well, it sure, has the ones G- they it had has
0: GPS, yeah,
1: but I'm it sure. didn't have
2: GPS, which feeds into the eGPWS. I don't well, think they had, had eGPWS. I think it was just GPWS.
1: It had some form of GPS, I'm sure, but it's it's no. It more, just said
2: that they wanted it GPS installed.
1: Yeah, it's an A320. It comes stock. Okay, well, I don't know. It, what it must mean is some kind of database.
0: Or upgraded database or yeah. something. Um, either way, it needed to be completed by July of 2017. What What's so strange to me is that this happened in 2015. I'm like, how How do we get this far? And right. then it still happened. <laughs> right? How <laughs> That's
1: kind of mind blowing to me.
0: Flight attendant training has been amended to incorporate practical training on two door operation, which I feel like is just normal. Yeah. I don't know why it wasn't normal at this point, but okay. Air Canada's express regional partner airlines have aligned their non-precision approach ban policy to adopt the changes in Air Canada FOM Bulletin 324, which I had stated earlier. So all their other smaller like express carriers have yep. to do the same as they did. Um, one I like thing for- jazz. Yeah. Yes. Yes. One thing for Airbus, Airbus has revised the aircraft maintenance manual to reflect the seat manufacturer's component maintenance manual update, which recommends that the shoulder harness webbing be extended 25% more before testing the operation of the initial reel or inertial reel. Yeah. Um, so there was, like I said, there's something about the the webbing that was holding it in place that caused both. Both of them basically to fail. The mm-hmm. yeah. first officers kept him from going completely forward. But he still went obliquely. Yes, and the yeah. captain just failed.
2: <laughs> Great.
0: So The next one's um, actually for the airport, and I'm actually going to skip it because really I, the big thing was like the generators went down. Yeah. And they couldn't get back up, which that's a problem, and transport and all that stuff was a problem. But yeah, big time. As long as my guess is is that they made some systems and change in lighting and things like that so that that wouldn't happen again. Right. Let me look. Uh, That's it. Okay, cool. Well, Canada. Canada. (laughs) Come on, Canada. Get your act together. Get your act together. Air Canada.
1: Kidding, of course. Jesus.
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like I said, it's just surprising to me that this happened like literally not that long ago yeah just like a few years ago five more seven, more than five years ago. seven years ago, that's Miranda. so weird it's so weird
2: i know um, you also realize we're going on three years for this podcast that's also weird isn't it there's
0: so many episodes <laughs> i have to tell you when i have to do the stuff on the website and i have to pull up related episodes i'm like Uh, I don't even remember what half of these episodes are about. (laughs) It is amazing
1: how many hours we've sat in front of these microphones. It's hard to even think about how many hundreds of hours of stuff we've recorded here.
0: Oh, my God. So I hope you guys enjoyed this impromptu Miranda-sode, basically, due to extenuating circumstances. So thank you very much for, uh, you know, hanging out with us. Yeah, thanks. Just so you all are aware, I do this once a month. On Patreon, there's 29 other episodes of mine currently up there. If yep. you want to go listen to them, you got to be a $10 patron. That there are. You also get to listen to cool post episodes, because we do post episodes for those episodes, too. Yep. And And uh, Nick's and I, for the last one, was uh, great. It was long. It was long.
1: We did a lot of talking. We did. I didn't think we would, and we did.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please give us feedback. I, this is not a normal thing. It will not become a normal thing. It may like if we have an emergency again be a thing but that's about it like yeah i usually just do this once a month i promise right so thank you for listening have a safe and healthy week and nice we'll- just luck on our trip yeah yeah although we're already gone by the time you hear this <laughs> yeah. and uh we hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week keep, keep your speed, speed up please like and follow us on facebook and instagram at hard landings podcast and on twitter at hard landings pod Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen.
1: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
0: This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
1: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
0: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.